0: Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I am bringing you a conversation that I found very interesting, but also deeply moving, which caught me by surprise. And I owe that feeling completely to my guest. Today, I'm talking about animal-assisted psychotherapies with my guest, Philip Tedeschi. Philip Tedeschi, LCSW, is the executive director of the Institute for Human-Animal Connection and a clinical professor at the Graduate School of Social Work in the University of Denver. He's globally recognized for expertise in the clinical methods of animal-assisted interventions, and he coordinates the school's Animal-Assisted Social Work Certificate Program for MSW students, as well as the Animals and Human Health Professional Development Certificate Program. Philip received his MSSW degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where his specialization was the bio-affiliative connection between people and animals. He studies and teaches on the intricate relationship between people, domestic and wild animals, and the natural world. Tedeschi's research, scholarship, presentations, training, and community practice work have focused on human-animal interactions, conservation social work. Human Ecology, Causes of Violence Toward People and Animals. Tedeschi is a certified master therapeutic writing instructor, former course director and instructor with Outward Bound, wilderness medical technician, forensic evaluator, and has many years of experience in non-traditional therapeutic approaches with children, adults, and families. He specializes in the therapeutic and health-promoting potential of human-animal and nature interaction, trauma-informed methods and intervention in interpersonal violence, including assessment and intervention with cruelty and animal abuse. I found out about Philip because he has done a lot with natural lifemanship, which is a trauma-informed equine-assisted psychotherapy method that is different from the other approaches that are out there. And he has a book out that you will hear about in our conversation. It's called Transforming Trauma, Resilience and Healing Through Our Connections with Animals, New Directions in the Human-Animal Bond. I was, obviously, I expected to have a good conversation, but I was very, very moved by this discussion. And I'm hoping that Philip will agree to come back on the podcast in the future. So let's just dive right in to my interview with Philip Tedeschi. Therapy Chat Podcast wouldn't exist without the support of its listeners. If you'd like to become a member, please go to patreon.com slash therapy By making a $1 per month donation, you can help Therapy Chat keep going over the long haul. Thank you for your support. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I am very honored to be speaking with someone about a subject that you've heard about here on Therapy Chat before, but certainly not to the level that we're going to discuss today. My guest is Philip Tedeschi, LCSW, who is a professor and the executive director of the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work, as well as the author of a recent book called Transforming Trauma, Resilience and Healing Through Our Connections with Animals. Philip, thanks so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You're so welcome. And I'm grateful that you could and were willing to come and talk with us. So let's just start off by, if you will, you telling our audience just a little bit about yourself and your work.
1: Sure, glad to. Yes. Well, I've been a a clinical social worker for going on about almost 30 years, and my area of specialization and interest started out really focusing on populations that I would describe as, you know, at risk populations. And one of the things that interested me early on in terms of exploring strategies for working with populations that in many cases had difficulty connecting or trusting uh, the therapeutic process, were working on very difficult issues, was why, why they would want to make those changes and what would be motivators for them to engage in clinical work. So, Early in my career, I became very interested in experiential practice, worked as an outward bound instructor for a number of years, became really interested in ways to motivate individuals and also working in non-traditional types of environments so that we could benefit from, you know, getting out of kind of the typical clinical types of settings. And one of the things that that brought me to early in my career was an interest in the incorporation of our relationship with with other animals and and that's really the work i've been doing primarily as a as a professor and and academic, but also have incorporated that into my practice for for many uh, years now. And so, so that's really kind of the origins of it. And you know, if I back all the way up, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian early on, and was studying veterinary medicine. And at the time, I was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and was asked to teach at that time i was uh, working as a a veterinary technician in their large animal hospital and also running their equine program and and in the course of that work was asked if i would teach a a class of fairly newly deinstitutionalized adults with schizophrenia who had been diagnosed with various dimensions of schizophrenia how to ride horses and and at at the time, I knew a lot more about horses, frankly, than I did about schizophrenia. But early in my career, just that very um, early opportunity to expose those individuals to horses was really kind of a aha moment and altered my trajectory from there on. I remember almost immediately asking my advisor at the time that, you know, that I wanted to you know, leave vet school and study human animal connection, which he promptly told me I couldn't uh, do because there really wasn't a a focus or a field at that time. Mm. And now we really do have a lot of new areas of interest in this in this particular area. And one of the few people that I knew was doing very interesting work with human animal connection was, was Jane Goodall, who, who was very influential for me in terms of making the choices that I made to begin to study human animal connection. And in fact, um, was such an important con- colleague or mentor to me that I was asked to contribute a chapter to her 80th birthday book, um, when it was published. So, Uh, So the long story short is I started out, I can kind of blame animals for ending up working with people and have been doing that ever since.
0: Wow. I can't help but wonder. I don't know for other people who are listening, but to me, I'm familiar with Jane Goodall and her work with chimpanzees, I believe. Uh I'm right. (laughs) So that's where it started. Yeah. Yeah. But it's never the only thing. Well, I guess I don't want to. Betray how little I know about it, but it it doesn't seem to be a direct connection from, you know, us using horses or dogs or other animals in therapy to what I know of what she used to do. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Help us understand the connection.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think your question is good. I don't, I don't think it reflects lack of knowledge, but I think it, it, it reflects the fact that we often haven't, you know, entirely incorporated or included what we now know about non-human animals. And really the way I w- would articulate that would be that if we begin to become interested in whether or not we can have relationships with other animals, other non-human animals. One of the dimensions of that very quickly becomes a question about sentience and whether or not you believe that other animals, besides human animals, have the capacity for cognition and complex emotions like we do. Because if at the, we look at the heart of the connection between people and their animals, even their companion animals that they live with, like their, let's say their dogs or their cats, these are animals that have very deep connections with us and we do with them. In fact, our research shows that for many people, their companion animals are some of their most reliable. Um, relationships that they have in their life. Some of the least complicated and most reliable relationships are often occurring with non-humans. And the research also shows that we gain support like we do in any other human relationship. We gain social connectivity and support. And that this level of support, is one of the primary, probably most powerful dimensions of the health-promoting benefits of our connection with other animals. And so it's potential, for example, to make impact on loneliness or isolation or numerous other mental health challenges. And this is just a few of the possible um, implications or benefits that, that that's part of it. And so when you go all the way back to those people who early on began to study other non-human animals in Dr. Jane's case, you know, studying the chimpanzees in Gombe Reserve and being, telling us a bit about these uh, incredible animals and starting to do things that other scientists at the time weren't doing, including seeing them as individuals and giving them names, which was at that time not considered typical or even appropriate for scientists to study animals and give them names. But one of the things, that quickly came out of her ten, her inclination to look at these, individ, these animals as individuals, not just as a species, was a recognition of behavior that was suggestive of complex emotion and thought. And what we sometimes now call belief in animal mind. And the concept um, of belief in animal mind is often the basis for us recognizing that we can have relationships with other animals that are not human.
0: Yeah. Wow. I mean, you're really getting me thinking so much, but, you know, it just one of the things that comes into my mind is how so many people think that, for example, I've heard a lot of people say that cats are stupid because they don't quote, you know, they don't come when you call them or they don't know their own names, which is such a I know that's not true because I've had cats and, you know, not true. Yes, I mean they're they're very very smart, but they're also they're very sensitive, and you feel when you have a a pet, you know you can feel that emotional connection with them. I guess if you allow yourself to, but I also think that often many people aren't able to. Maybe it's like they're too guarded to even allow that kind of closeness with their pet. You know what I mean, or to think about it.
1: Yeah I mean I think I think that that is possible I think the other dimension of this that you know we probably need to acknowledge is that human beings are are quite self-centered mm-hmm. and and in you know could arguably be seen as quite lazy communicators um compared to many other animals where you know we have started to rely almost entirely just on spoken or written language other animals use almost everything but that And that those are communication tools that actually inform our work. So as a therapist, if we can actually work alongside an animal, we're bringing with us new ways of understanding, new ways of knowing, and which are just as real as our ability to to understand anything else, let's say but we would have to humble ourselves to a recognition that human beings are just one species. And there's a tendency for human beings, in particular, I would say kind of our modern human being, to create what we sometimes think of as the, we refer to, or has historically been referred to as the the scala naturae, or the nature's ladder, where we place animals, other animals that are not human, on a on a hierarchy of sorts. And much of this is driven by religion and our teachings that we're made in the image of God or that we're special because we're human. When we start to really look at qualities of other animals, we find that other animals have these unique and amazing capabilities that human beings in many cases don't. So I'm not really talking about better or worse but what i am talking about kind of are the origins of diversity and recognition that human beings have their capabilities and other animals have their capabilities and that we don't necessarily you know have to only look at animals through whether or not they're like us and unfortunately people r- routinely do this where we you know if they're Look like a baby or remind us of a child or um, are designed in ways that meet our human kind of centric orientation and needs, then they get more value. Some of the most important animals on the face of the planet, in terms of the planet's health, are not animals that many people value. Things like bats, for example. Um, you know, that are critical for the, for the health, for public health and for the health of the planet. And yet most people probably don't spend much time thinking about the importance of their relationship with those types of animals. So, so one of the, you know, wonderful things about my work, I suppose that I value more than anything else is it's really allowed me to reflect on diversity and the significance of our interconnectedness with other animals including the environment the living environment and at the heart of the therapeutic process which i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about is this understanding that health is optimized when we're in contact with other healthy living systems and other animals and that that's really the basis of my new book
0: wow yes i love that perspective And I know it's true, but it just is. seems like it's just becoming, that message is just becoming amplified in our culture, you know, just beginning to be really more mainstream that we exist for connection with others. And, you know, we're all, you know, there's a big ecosystem here. It's all working together and we're part of it. It's not just, you know, the place we live and the things that are around us to serve us, which is kind of the way human development in terms of like civilization and the perspective, you know, that that brings has been, it's like there's people and then there's the non-humans, which are not worth as much.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and and we do, we have, you know, a lot to reason for people who care about animals to be frustrated and upset these days Mm -hmm. because we are seeing such a, level of irresponsible and callous kind of regard for our protection of other animals. And it, and it does ultimately relate to our wellbeing as well. And, you know, I think it's one of the areas that I hope other mental health practitioners, particularly social workers, I think should understand this because we use terms like person in environment or systems theory as our grounded uh, concepts for most of our work. And yet when we've talked about that historically, the field of social work often has not meant living environment or green, green environment. But built environment or the human kind of environment around us. And ironically, you know, I think we will be in a time if we're not already in this time where literally every social worker should should be trained and understand this and the implications of our connectedness to healthy living, ecological systems and other animals, because these will be ultimately critical aspects of human health and even human security and they're the so they're the building blocks of good child psychological health and good physical health early in our lives but ultimately they impact us throughout our entire life. So it's a very very important area for us to be talking about I think as as practitioners.
0: Yeah, I agree and I I wholeheartedly agree with what you said about that we don't often consider that as social workers and I'm glad that since you're a part of the process of educating social workers, you have that perspective to bring.
1: Yeah, it's it's been a, a real joy working with students. I'm, I teach in a program at the University of Denver that's an um, all-graduate. It's an all-graduate program, and I'm always amazed by the students that arrive in our program because they have been thinking about this, and many of them clearly understand the significance, in fact, often what has drawn them into this inquiry, professional inquiry, has been um, that animals have already been significant in their lives. I've had many students tell me, you know, that they've had an interaction with an animal that literally saved their life. And, you know, I'm sure that there are some of your listeners who will probably relate to that where, you know, at a time in a place, for example, where it, other people couldn't reach them or where they didn't trust other people. In fact, one of the primary places we see animal assisted um, interventions being very important and highlighted in in this book is um, circumstances where our trust in human beings has been lost. And, you know, what happens to somebody who can no longer trust? Well, those are often the persons who end up, you know, in our offices, in our um, carceral systems, you know, in, in crisis and often in tremendous amounts of pain that can create problems for themselves and others.
0: Yes. Yes. And, and you're bringing to mind, um, programs that I've heard about equine programs at prisons and for veterans with PTSD, you know, programs that are specifically tailored towards people who have been harmed, And may have also done harm to other humans or animals. And how, you know, the tenderness that's what comes up for me is like the tenderness that one can develop in relationship with an animal that may feel too threatening with a human.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, probably the most, some of the most exciting scientific and research developments in our field have been to understand that when we're in a safe interaction with an animal that it can actually change our interpersonal neurobiology to the to the degree that it may allow individuals who have previously been um, unreachable or or in many cases what we sometimes you know refer to as, as treatment resistant or treat untreatable, to to meh, to have new tools in that pop, with those populations, and I'll just give you an example of a few. Okay, cool. uh, this in our in in this book, Transforming Trauma, we highlight kind of three primary areas, one being child developmental trauma, which we would, you know, most people would recognize um, often now even called a syndrome um, for those children who have been chronically exposed to um, maltreatment throughout their lives, often at the hands of their own caretakers. We also look at post-traumatic stress um, and its movement from being a pathology or a disorder to resilience and what, ca- what allows us to um, potentially work with post-traumatic stress in ways that um, create improved outcomes. And then we've also, in this book, looked at more atypical aspects, including, um, however, and not limited to mass casualty, school shootings, um, natural disasters, war, um, for example, in In fact, I was just um recently in Israel working on a project there where we've just opened the very first uh prison canine program in the Middle East that pairs street dogs with um Persons who are in an Israeli prison in northern Israel along the Syrian border and looking at these various applications, how animals can work in these various contexts. One of the things that's just amazing is that those are all almost all examples of various kinds of tra- trauma where the brain has been altered by their experience of the threatening or traumatic event. And that one of the things we're trying to do in most of our, you know, inter trauma kind of informed intervention models is to retrain the brain, um, to give it, you know, to allow that individual to use their body and their brain to respond to their environment accurately and, One of the things that has come out of this work is this understanding of what we call the polyvagal theory. And and in that theory is another concept we refer to as neuroception. And neuroception refers to pre-conscious awareness of well-being or threat, which often, you know, is hard to identify and hard to work with for, for us as clinicians, because by the time somebody is able to talk about their trauma, they're conscious about the, often in many cases, the symptoms of that trauma or the triggers for that trauma. But many people experience trauma and are impacted by their trauma in ways that are pre-conscious or even subconscious. And this concept of neuroception is referring to that idea. And one of the things that having the presence of safe animals or thriving animals, um, living systems are immediately around us, is that that information informs our neuroception, what we call neuroception of safety. And that becomes the early basis for shifting neurobiology, making somebody more accessible, more talkable, more trusting. So, for example, in the presence of a safe dog, a therapist often looks more trustworthy than a therapist without a safe dog present. And that presence, just the simple presence of an animal who is demonstrating that they're confident in that person or comfortable in the presence of those, provides this neuroceptive information, this pre-information that allows treatability to be much more likely once we get you know started in our more traditional methodologies for trauma treatment.
0: therapists. We've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years, and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone and Anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. That makes so much sense. And I it it brings up one of the questions that was on my mind about using animals in therapy. And, you know, I'm thinking about I'll disclose that I I have intended, I just haven't gotten around to it, but I have intended to do your animal assisted therapy certificate program at the University of Denver. Oh,
1: we'd love to have
0: And I've been on the waiting list. And then every time the cohort opens, I'm like, oh, it's not the right time. But I'm keeping on getting those emails. (laughs) But, you know, what made me want to sign up for that was wanting to offer having the services of a therapy dog in my practice. But I knew and partly from talking with other clinicians that it's not just having your pet dog there with you at work, you know, and you, and the dog is in the room and the clients get to pet the dog if they want to, or the dog might sit by them, you know, it's, it seems there's a lot more to it, which is why I haven't just a, why I haven't started bringing my dog to my practice yet. And, um, B why I haven't signed up for the program yet, because I know there's a lot to understand about it.
1: Well, you know, there there is a lot to understand about it. But, you know, one of the things that you're um, saying, I'll just put this out there as a um, maybe as a consideration, you know, the origins of our field in some ways, at least the modern day origins of incorporation of an animal in a, in a psychotherapy session could be traced back to People like Dr. Boris Levinson, who you know also snuck his dog into his own office because he just liked having his dogs with him. He was a child psychologist and You know, what he noticed in short order was that the child clients in his office would get out of their chairs and they'd sit on the floor and they would often sit with his dog or his dogs. And and then he would find himself awkwardly sitting above the child in his chair. And so he would get out of his chair and then sit on the floor. And in the process of then routinely, you know, bringing these animals in and then seeing how his clients responded and then changing his own behavior and then sharing this animal as they were petting it together, he started to recognize that he saw about twice as much verbal participation from these child clients in the therapy session than without. And he, he gave one of the earliest presentations at the American Psychological Association back in the 1960s and was, you know, at that time, laughed at and not taken very seriously. What he was seeing, however, in that shift in his client's willingness to talk is the oxytocin system being activated and and the child being safe in that context. And now, you know, so so ironically, some of the ways in which we might incorporate animals to be quite important and therapeutic, there are more complex ways, but they're also very simple ways. And by having the presence of a safe animal in our lives, it changes us. It changes our physiology and and ultimately um, changes, you know, the way in which we interact with the environments around us. That's probably our best explanation for why about 75 million people have dogs in their homes today and why we're so connected to our companion animals. I mean, I think the average dog gets seven gifts a year. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and Valentine's Day is the most popular um, day to give gifts on, right? So this is a real love affair, not by accident, but because we actually often have some of our best times and feel happy in the presence of our companion animals. And they feel that way around us, too, in most cases.
0: Yeah. Well, that's pretty validating in terms of the just having the animal there and how it can help both probably the therapist and the client to feel more relaxed and more comfortable to allow the therapeutic relationship to unfold. That's, that's reassuring that just that is valuable.
1: Yeah. And I, I I think, you know, and then to your, your own interest and maybe other, some of your listeners are, have been thinking about the same thing with a main area. If I was to point to kind of one of the big competencies we look for and why we run programs for education and training for practitioners and and clinicians is is really developing our ethics a kind of turning into ethicists alongside the skills necessary to be a good therapist with an animal really is this idea of whether or not we have sensitized ourselves to and taken the time to learn what it the implications are for choosing to use another sentient being and I and I use that term use intentionally because we are making a decision to put them in that situation and as a result we have a a deep responsibility to them it's unlike any other therapy where we wouldn't say you know I'm going to use my child for that purpose or I'm going to use a prop of another human being for that purpose every other intervention is really in you know allows that practitioner to make a conscious decision to be in that role. And we're making that decision for the animals that work with us. So that has both a moral dimension to it. In other words, is it the right thing for us to do to incorporate an animal? And if so, what kinds of animals and which animals could benefit or have a positive experience doing that work with us. And then secondarily, it brings up a a question of how do we go about becoming then supportive and a good advocate for the animals that are working with us to ensure that their well-being is, is really an important part of our agenda. That is also, turns out, to be a great focus because it's the vehicle by which therapeutic benefits transfer. We would not get a therapeutic benefit from having an animal that's in distress Mm -hmm. or being harmed in a therapeutic environment. In fact, there's reason to believe that it would be just the opposite, that it would be significant risk factors involved. Um, You probably have, you know, bad, poor outcomes or, or at least unfortunate outcomes by incorporating an animal that really isn't well suited to participate in the kinds of work we're talking about.
0: Yes. One thing I'm thinking of there, and I'm so glad you brought up the ethics and moral issue, because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. But what comes to mind for me is the idea if you were doing therapy, using a horse in the work, and the horse was really not voluntarily consenting, or not consenting at all to the process, but just sort of dissociated and how to me, it could mirror when you're working with someone who's experienced trauma, you know, their felt sense feels that dissociation and it can be re-traumatizing. Yeah, I think that
1: uh, there certainly is potential for that. It might also be like, uh, what would it be like to have a therapist who doesn't really want to be there? Mm-hmm. You know, and you know those sorts of things. And I think the term you used is a, is an interesting one, the concept of consent. And it goes back to our early discussions about can we actually speak, you know, do we understand other animals and can we speak with other animals? Well, it turns out that, you know, if we're waiting for an animal to to say to us, you know, I don't really want to be here, get me out of here. Um, we're going to be waiting a long time. But if we are observant and if we do believe in ethology and the understanding that animals have complex emotions and are sentient and have thoughts of their own, that, like with human beings, often shows up in observable actions and behaviors that as we've started to learn more about how to communicate with animals, particularly dogs and horses, and I would say cats, and some other domestic farm animals, I think, can also fall in this category. Dogs are probably the most identifiably clear communicators with us in part because they've been evolving alongside human beings for, you know, tens of thousands of years. And this co-evolution or what we call evolutionary continuity, this connection allows dogs now to be literally the smartest animal relative to human emotion, human communication, human affect. And, and conversely, we understand a lot about what dogs are communicating. And so the animals that we have the best ability to have that kind of level of synchronicity or good communication with often allows us to do a better job incorporating them in the work we're doing in ways that are ethical and appropriate.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It's like they know how to communicate the way that we can understand it because they sure. you know they're evolving in a way they're smarter because they've learned how to adapt to us so that we can understand them so we say oh dogs are smart because we can yeah, understand that's a, that's <laughs> right well we did. yeah and i
1: think your comments about cats were interesting you know, i was just going to say i think you know cats are a species that we've been evolving with but not for quite as long and they're a very different species than dogs they have a lot of different needs than a dog does. And so if we're thinking of our cat as just a tiny dog, we're gonna be frustrated because that's not who they are, right? And yet if we really study feline behavior and, and learn about cats, cats are, are very intelligent and very capable of communicating a lot of information to us and also are very different species with different needs than us.
0: Yes, I I feel that and you know, with, as a cat lover, you know, I've had many cats and I've witnessed how they sense and understand a lot more than we do in many situations about what's going on, even in our own emotions and how, you know, they can't really tell us, but if we can learn to understand what they are trying to tell us with their their body language, there's a lot there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's also, you know, interestingly enough, quite a lot of intersectionality. Cats are one of the most targeted animals um, for interpersonal kind of violence in the home. Mm -hmm. Often when we have kind of unpackaged the cause of cats being such a target for this is that many of the controllers and persons engaged in this harm directed at cats attribute um, whether they're female or male cats, attribute female uh, qualities to those cats and and often describe them in similarly pejorative ways to the quite aggressive ways that many men, for example, who target women for violence will talk about the rationale for, for needing to control or be abusive in their intimate partner relationships.
0: Hmm. That's a point I've never thought of, but that That sounds very true to me. So, Philip, I'm sad that our time is already coming to an end and we really barely got to talk about your book, but can you give maybe a brief little summary for our audience? And maybe you can return in the future if you're willing to, but for now, could you give our audience just a little brief summary of really who this book is for and how it can be used? What you've already described sounds very interesting. So, I'm sure you're going to find a lot of people wanting to buy it after they hear this.
1: Well, I, I hope they do. It, it was definitely a, a, a you know a, a work a, a work of love, and it took us about four years and emanated out of our conference that was named the same thing called Transforming Trauma. And, and by the way, I'll, I'll just mention for persons very interested in this area, we have conferences every year uh, at the university and then alternating years, we partner with a program called Green Chimneys in Brewster, New York to put on um, major conferences that are for those people really wanting to learn more about you know, the intersection between human health and animals. These would be good conferences to maybe can take a look at. So four years ago, we ran a conference called Transforming Trauma, where we were highlighting kind of the new work being done in this area. That was the impetus for the book. It's published by Purdue Press. And, uh, and the forward of this book, which I was very happy, um, he agreed to do this. Was provided by Dr. Bruce Perry, who as oh. people would know, yeah. Um, yeah. Dr. Bruce Perry is probably the leading child trauma specialist in the United States, and for many years has been a um, an important researcher in the area of child uh, developmental trauma. Is the founder of the trauma um child trauma network and also the neurosequential um model for treating trauma in child developmental trauma. And in that model, and he'll he talks about this right in the forward of the book, is this recognition that we often um really need to build into the interactions with children who have, whose trust has been so harmed by these by these mal, you know, this chronic maltreatment is positive interactions that are both safe and pleasurable and rewire the brain through the very kinds of changes in interpersonal neurobiology that I was just discussing that occurs with uh, our interactions with safe animals and and he as a result has been very supportive of the inclusion of animal assisted interventions in many of the programs that are operating under his supervision including one of our primary programs here in Denver that um that the dog that's li- that's sitting right under my desk at the moment is a is a dog who works at this child trauma academy and And so I'd say for people who would like, you know, who are working as trauma specialists and who are interested in this area, I think you'll find this book illuminating. We also try to cover non-traditional methodologies, including, and just one example I'll give is the role that animals play, even street dogs, unwanted dogs can play in places like um, central Uganda and treating the survivors of the Ugandan civil war who in many cases have very few or no resources for you know um, mental health recovery they may not even necessarily use the term post-traumatic stress and yet uh, dogs are being deployed as ways to help those individuals recover so we're starting to see this occur all over the world we have students on every continent in the world except for i think antarctica (laughs) at this point and we're we're thrilled that people are starting to think rethink their relationships with other animals, whether you, whether they choose to incorporate them as a therapist, or even if they're just trying to deepen the relationships with their own animals. I think um, those are are is time really well spent. So this book I think gets into a lot of that as well as um, quite a deep dive into the ethical the ethical responsibilities of of our work with other animals.
0: Thank you. Sorry for all the noise, but my dog is getting very excited because she sees a squirrel outside.
1: (laughs) I had a feeling it might've been an animal. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Just running back and forth. Well, I I think your book sounds amazing and I hope that our audience is going to go and grab it up. But I know you also do, you have the program at the university as well as you do consultation with clinicians as well, is that right?
1: That's right. So I do consultation with clinicians who are interested in thinking about this as, as part or maybe are already doing this work um, and as a as through distance uh, supervision. And we also do have a number of educational and academic programs. Uh, If they're interested in that, probably the easiest way to get familiar with that is is to search um, Institute for Human-Animal Connection. That will bring you to our program at the University of Denver. And there is a live link to a number of the programs that we run there, including our humane education professional training called Raising Compassionate Kids, which is focused on training professionals to do intervention with early learners. Uh, We also have specializations with equine-assisted mental health and canine-assisted intervention specializations and then also a professional development certificate called Animals in Human Health, which is... Probably the most in depth um, distance learning training for um, kind of we would consider that to be professional development training. And then people who are really looking for to do this work professionally, who are wanting to get a terminal degree, um, we have our on campus uh, MSW program with a specialization in animal assisted social work. Um, and that is done on site and here in Denver.
0: That's awesome. I'm so glad for everything you. And your program and your university are doing to bring this work to a wider audience. And I'm very grateful that you were able to take the time to be my guest today.
1: Well, thank, yeah, thank you. We love talking about our work um, and and we'd be glad to come back and talk about other dimensions of it if it's of interest to to your listeners and and I'm glad to do it anytime.
0: Wonderful. Well, I will definitely ask you to set up another time to do that. And I'm, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Philip Tedeschi. I wonder if it was as poignant for you as it was for me. I don't know what it was, but there's something about his presence that resonated with me on a felt sense level, which makes sense because that's what this work is all about. That's what natural lifemanship is all about. That's what trauma work is all about. So it is clear to me that Philip is really embodying that work. And I'm so grateful that he agreed to be my guest today. As always, I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. So please feel free to get in touch with me by email or by going to the speak pipe button on the website, therapychatpodcast.com and sending me a message. I always try to respond. I don't always respond as quickly as I would like to but I'm working on it. So thanks for your patience and please keep communicating with me. It keeps me inspired. Until next time, be well. and Thanks for listening to Therapy Chat. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. Just another reminder that if you'd like to become a member of therapy chat, supporting the podcast while receiving fun member perks and being able to communicate with me one-on-one, go to patreon.com slash therapy If every subscriber donated just $1 per month, therapy chat would be able to keep going strong indefinitely. Thanks so much for your support. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.